0: Welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Cassingham and I interview the greatest of all time of sustainability. In this episode, we talk with Kate Williams, CEO of 1% for the Planet. If you haven't heard of 1% for the Planet, they are an incredible organization. It was originally founded by two visionaries in the sustainability space to reimagine the impact that we can have not only as businesses, but as individuals as well on the world around us. And, you know, 1%, when you think about it, is not a lot to give. When you think about 1% of your company's revenue or 1% of your personal revenue through the year, but that 1% can be given any way you want it to be given. So, you know, you don't have to give to one organization versus another. You can actually choose your local community. You can choose causes, things that you really care about and get involved. I just think that everything that 1% for the planet is doing is absolutely incredible. It's something I totally believe in. So I'm really excited about this one. And Let's dive right in. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and honestly being on this podcast. It's, it's really exciting to just have you be a part of it. Um, really, really fun. So I figured we would just kind of dive in and just... I want to learn more about you, kind of just like where you know, what, what's your background, what's your story, what kind of got you interested in just like environment, being outdoors and, and appreciating what the world has to offer?
1: Yeah. I grew up outside of Boston, um, in a, you know, suburb, uh, which is actually great. I, you know, I had like backyard to ramble around in and, um, and then my family had a camp on a lake in Maine. So I spent a lot of time camp, which is like new England talk for like small, very small fishing cabin like you can see the lake through the cracks and the boards kind of thing. Um, wow. Yeah. And it, it was, you know, so our family definitely was kind of connected to the outdoors, I would say not in like big mountain wilderness type of way. I didn't do that until I got, I was older, but, you know, definitely just as like getting up early and going fishing with my dad and kind of being of the generation that's like go outside and play and we'll tell you when dinner is ready and I had two older brothers so we did a lot of rambling around outside
0: do you remember the first fish that you caught
1: I don't know if I remember the first fish I totally remember trolling for northern pike in the lake and they put up a big fight and I remember getting one on the line I think I was really small because I remember like my dad's arms around me like holding on to the rod with me and I remember feeling like you know, like holding my breath and like gritting my teeth. And I'm sure, you know, it was probably not as big as I think of it, but I remember it just being like such a struggle. And so um, I no longer like really like fishing that much, but I, at that time, it was just such a fun, like getting up early and having hot tea and like going in the boat with my dad and my brothers. And so just the whole like experience I have great memories of.
0: That's awesome. And so you obviously went, went through school and- Did you, were you kind of always surrounded with the outdoors or did, did you kind of take a break for a little bit?
1: Yeah, not really. So for me, like when I graduated from high school, my parents gave me as a gift, which was lovely, um, a Knowles course, National Outdoor Leadership School. So I spent like the day after, like a few days after graduation, I got on a plane and went out to Wyoming and spent 30 days in the Wind River Range, which was such a great thing. I mean, that was exactly what I Wanted to do. I was so ready to be high school and just to like be able to be a new person. I had um, I had gone to the same school from kindergarten through twelfth grade. So like Mm -hmm. you know that kind of locks you in a little bit to you know. And so I just wanted to go be who I was at that age. And so I had an amazing, amazing experience. And um, you know, it was a really hard trip. We had like a ton of snow. Speaking of snow. Um, and so we were on, you know, traveling through snow almost the whole time, which was a little unusual for that the time of year. And um, an instructor broke his leg, and we had to do this big evacuation. And it was like pre-cell phone, so it's like all these like objective challenges. It was very hard, but I totally loved it because I felt like I was like, you know, just asked to be my best self, and I got to lead the group for like part of the evacuation just because we had instructors like going to get helicopters and stuff like that. And so they're like, Kate, you like, so it was a really amazing experience. And I remember right after the um, like helicopter lifting off into the sky, beautiful sunset standing at this pass where we had had the helicopter come in, I remember having a moment, which really was an aha moment. Um, and um, you know, it's just like really tired, really hungry, wet, like had been in snow, like my boots had frozen and all of these things that like I could have been totally miserable. And I just remember standing there thinking, I love this. Like this is what I want to do with my life. And and really like from that point on, like that awareness, and I didn't know exactly what this meant. It was partly like the group and like having that sense of kind of camaraderie together toward a shared goal but partly to just like being in this big wild beautiful place and feeling such a connection to the earth and it's like this is it for me and so really that has been what I've been trying to figure out my whole career um
0: so what did that look like when you were I mean so from that moment I mean that's that's such a cool moment by the way to to be able to experience that I mean when you when you have that moment where you're like I have a choice here and I'm going to choose it. This is really cool. <laughs> like that's that's amazing. What does that look like when you're like okay, now what though? Like what what were those next steps? Cuz there's always that conversation. You're like, "What do I do now?"
1: I know. That. I'm glad you asked that. because I always feel like I'm obligated to make sure that just because I had that moment doesn't mean I knew what I was doing all the time. Um mm-hmm. But, you know, basically the like what I then was trying to figure out is like, there's connecting other people to this experience. So, you know, how can I share this and let other people, you know, create opportunities where other people can fall in love with this type of experience and go forth in the world with that love in them or, and, or, you know, can I, you know work on behalf of the environment? And, you know, and again, those are two enormous buckets, but that was essentially kind of what I was wrestling with. So after college, I went the first route and was an outdoor educator for close to 10 years, which is amazing. We lived in New Mexico and I worked at a school where, you know, we took the students out and it was a required part of their education, which was very cool. So
0: and what was the move to New Mexico? What was what did that look like when you were just like, was it just like I'm going to up and move to New Mexico? Or was it, was it like particularly just the job opportunity?
1: I mean, I got the job out there. And so that was Mm -hmm. the, but I, you know, part of it was like, excellent. Like if I, if I had gotten that job in New Jersey, I don't think I would have taken it at the time. Like, (laughs) you know, it was definitely, I wanted to be in a different place and in a place where I could be, you know, have access to, you know, just learning new places and being closer to bigger mountains. And we, my husband who I met in college, and then he joined me in New Mexico and we uh, got married when we were out there. Um, We loved New Mexico so much, like we adored it and um, still kind of dream of going back and certainly, you know, visiting. My daughter is actually out there right now. She was born there. So, you know, we we loved it. I when I went out there, I thought, oh, you know, a couple years, you know, I'm in my early 20s because it was right after college. And, you know, you never know, like you never think something's going to last or you never know how long something's going to last. But, you know, we ended up just really, really loving it out there. So
0: that's amazing. So what what was that job experience like? I mean, was it um, was it something that you just constantly wanted more of? Was it something that you were trying to kind of figure out more? I mean, cause that, that pivotal time, I guess, in your twenties is kind of that time where you want to dabble in so many different things and and really find what you love. And was it that kind of experience or you were like this, I'm just going to keep going. And this is a step to continuing.
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, and I think when I like look back now in my career, I think I'm kind of like a sticker. Like I tend to Stay with things for chunks of time. And for me, the key is that I'm still like learning new things. Like the second I feel like I'm not doing that or I'm not feeling excited about the learning, that's when it's like, all right, time to move on. But, you know, for good or bad, I seem to have the capacity to keep learning in where I am for a while. So, in that one, um, I think the learning there was I did really love the opportunity to be out in the field with students, connecting with them in that way. So, you know, in, in reference to my, like, this is it moment, or, you know, this is what I love moment, you know, I definitely felt like an alignment with that. Um, And I also really liked at that particular job, I was doing that in the context of a community. So I was at a school, and I got to know students over time. And that was important to me, because I realized about myself, like, being part of a community and like being part of serving and supporting and learning within that community matters as opposed to being a kind of itinerant outdoor educator I think you know being in one community was a better fit for me neither is better or worse but that was that was a good fit for me so I you know was able to spend amazing time in the outdoors with kids who then you know they grew up while I yeah and I saw them over time like one of my students became my daughter's godmother and is still like a dear friend um oh, yeah that's amazing we had like really fabulous relationships with the the students that we taught and my husband also taught at that school um so and the other thing too that that gave me the opportunity to learn is that the leadership part of it was really is something that was part of the this moment like being in the that um 30-day course like I really you know saw how like dealing with those objective challenges we had to stay together as a group we had to you know literally stay on the same path together moving Mm -hmm. forward even though we all were dealing with our different sort of struggles and life stories and you know challenges and strengths and things like that and I love that stuff I'm totally fascinated by like how do you bring a group of people together to do something so um, that definitely started emerging as a thread for me when I was at this school in New Mexico, because, um, you know, as, as I was part of that one community, I got to be part of the sort of larger school thinking about how does our program fit with the other programs. And I became chair of that department, like we were a department just like English and math, which is a really cool part of this school. And so I really, you know, got to realize that the kind of strategic thinking and like, how do you connect with other groups? So that thread started to pull through. And that's definitely something that has, you know, carried through from there. And then, you know, I got, I did get to a certain point where it's like, I, okay, I don't want to be out in the field 80 days a year. That was about what I was doing. And it was awesome. But I did hit a point where it's like, okay, don't want to do that anymore. And then, um, you know, sort of tried my hand at classroom teaching, which I did not really like. I was like, okay, that was not the part of teaching that I liked. Um, and that was when I then really shifted into the, you know, the kind of other bucket that I mentioned earlier. So getting, you know, get, creating those opportunities for people to fall in love with the outdoors or advocating for, you know, the environment. And so I shifted over to that and began, like pulling that leadership thread through and also working in environmental nonprofits. So that was, you know, that's the like big second half of my career thus far.
0: Well, and I've been noticing community is such an important part of, honestly, whatever you're involved in. Um, but more importantly, when it comes to environmentalism and, and advocacy groups, it, it really is community. Like it is a, as big as this world is, it's also a very small world. And, and I think that those relationships that you build over time, they, they make a much bigger impact than, than most people realize in the moment. Um, how have you kind of seen that community grow over the years? Um, because you know now a lot of talk is centered around climate and environment, but it wasn't always that way. Um, how has that community kind of grown over the years?
1: That's such a huge and good question I mean, the, like what we mean when we say environment, and I almost like, I almost feel like weird saying it now because it has taken on like such a different meaning. I think, you know, at the time that I was 18, like standing in the mountains, it was wilderness in a lot of ways. You know, that was mm-hmm. sort of what was like what I was resonating with. But then pretty quickly as I, you know, was at the school and dealing with younger kids, it was like backyard wilderness, you know, it didn't need to be big and wild. It could, you know, be closer to home. And and then it was, you know, New Mexico, one of the amazing things about New, New Mexico is the diversity and, you know, the Pueblo communities. So the Pueblos are, you know, native peoples who have lived on that same land. They're not reservations. It's like, you know, they have, you know had sustained generational relationships on in these places. And so it just gave me a just deeper awareness of, um, place and like land protection and you know the overlay of white people on land that was taken away from native people so I really you know I began wrestling with that issue at that time as we were you know living in that place Um, you know and so that's you know a thread also a really important piece of understanding what environment means and then You know, fast forward to this year and it's not like this came to light this year, but certainly this year this past year signed a really clear spotlight in painful but really important ways on you know racial equity and and racial justice as part of environmental justice and how that all ties together so just you know continued layers of the community really kind of expanding and deepening i think if um, i know have like gone lots of places with your question but i do think those are some really important layers of my own learning um, and i think of the broader environmental community
0: that's really cool and and it it is an interconnected i mean no problem is siloed um, there's always other things that it affects and there's a whole history whether it's your forest conservation ocean whatever it is like there there is a, a long-standing history that also ties into the community of people and cultures and there's such a more of an under a bigger picture understanding that I think has to go into it rather than just looking at it through this you know narrow what are we looking at right here moment um, and thinking more like what it, where has it been where is it going and how can we be a part of that in a positive way um and and i guess like when so when you started kind of getting more into that leadership side of of your career um i would imagine you know part of it was you were questioning a little bit of what impact you could have on the world in a bigger way like you have your knowledge you took your experiences and you're like okay how can i amplify this for others um what was that kind of process like and and eventually like how did you end up you know, with 1% for the planet as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, for me, the leadership piece was slightly different in that, um, I would say it was kind of like more a reluctant leader in the sense that you're talking about. Like I, um, I was really interested in what I was mentioning earlier, like how do you organize people to work together towards a goal or to navigate a change. Like I remember like at age 21, this maybe makes me sound like a kind of geek, but I remember at age 21, like sitting, having a conversation with my husband, like what makes people change? Like, so if we know that we need to make changes to live better on the earth, like what what is it that prompts people to change? I'm still like fascinated Mm -hmm. by that question. But one of the pieces of that is like, if we know that we need to go there, and you, Mm -hmm. and you can get some people to be interested in going there, you still have to go there together. And I'm really interested in that process Mm -hmm. of like, how do you kind of identify and bring people into the there? And then how do you move together toward it? So, you know, for me, it was that. And I almost really early on was like surprised when, you know, I would be asked to be the department chair or be asked to like lead the students when the instructors were off getting the helicopters like me, like, you are talking to me? Like, yeah, I didn't sort of, I wasn't seeking that. I was more, um, mm-hmm. super interested in the mechanics of like how you do that. And so I think I was just like focused on that. And then like, you know, when I was sort of deciding that I wanted to transition out of outdoor education and more into like the next step, that's when I started really owning, like, I think that that's kind of just how I think and work is like, I see the big picture. I see the connections. I see, you know, I, I can't resist thinking that way. So I like was able to like get a little more intentional about like, okay. And I think that that is what has led me to have these leadership roles that I was kind of surprised by, um, and to like them too. And to feel like I added value, even if I sometimes felt like me, like, should I be doing this? Um, and so, you know, then, um, I, I went back to grad school and and in part like kind of studied like leadership and organizational dynamics because I was like, I did want to step into that more and then, you know, moved into the environmental nonprofit sector and, um, you know, and kind of took some steps. But, you know, really the like the big moment when I kind of owned that I wanted to step in a, into a leadership role was the job I had before this one when I was an executive director of this really awesome nonprofit called the Northern Forest Canoe Trail, long distance paddling trail, and you know, really beautiful um, resource. And it was based on traditional Native travel routes across northern New England, and just like super amazing um, resource. And like it was a very small kind of startup nonprofit, and I had the opportunity um after declining the opportunity to be assistant director because I was like I don't think I want to do that but if you're hiring a um executive director like I'll talk to you and like that was like really out of character for me to say that but I sort of had that clarity and they and that did come Mm. to pass in a couple months and um and I did that for 10 years and that was a really amazing experience to get to figure out how you build an organization and sort of you know build partnerships and build the connections that enable you to kind of move forward toward a goal it's also really hard like running a small nonprofit. like anyone out there who's doing that I have such incredible admiration for because it's so hard because you have this deep commitment to your mission which is so important but you're often like completely um you know consumed with figuring out how you're going to make the next payroll or you right. know those types of questions which can be quite stressful so but i had really amazing experience and amazing board members and just great learning in that um those 10 years and definitely like some hard knocks and like ups and downs and like that was good learning and then um very you know sort of serendipity and you know preparation through doing that job I was able to move into a director of partnerships role at one percent for the planet which happened to be right across the street in my little town at that time from yeah so that's like the serendipity And then a year later, I became CEO um, just because it happened to be a transition when I had started. So, and then we, the organization at that time was, had moved up to Burlington, which is our big city in Vermont. So, so sorry, that was, you know, a little bit of just like, I didn't mean to sound like too like this, then that, then that, but that is sort of the progression of like starting with, you know, directly connecting other people to the outdoors and moving to more of a leadership role where it's facilitating, you know sort of broader connections to like that you know the in- environmental commitment.
0: And so how does that work when you're so definitely in a small nonprofit like it all it's always you know funds it's fundraising you're always in fundraising mode whether it's an event whether it's partnerships you're always thinking of that but yeah you have that like deep rooted heart behind it that i think unless you know, many have come in contact with a nonprofit, it's not as common for them to actually feel that emotion. How did how did you kind of channel that in order to grow it? Because I mean that is a hard problem to solve. It's it's getting those fundraising. You have to think outside the box on especially when you're a small organization. You don't have the reputable, you know, ability, if you will, to to easily raise funds. Whereas sometimes, you know, when you do have a big company backing you, you can just be like, well We got these guys so here it is um what what was kind of like that what was the biggest challenge for you in that process like you you got there you were executive director and you have to start reaching these fundraising goals what were some of those challenges that you had to overcome
1: i think um i mean it's interesting you know how sometimes if you're in a challenge like it's almost after the fact that you realize what a big challenge it was. Cause when you're in it, you're just like, this is what I have to do. So it, it definitely was stressful, but I don't look back at that time as of feeling like flummoxed about like what to do. It was more like, okay, like game on. When I started, and the reason like the opportunity created is they um the founders um had secured some um federal funding because we were building this new recreational resource. So that was awesome. So basically when I was when I started we had a grant of like $200,000. And my job was to replace and build that. So I like kind of had my marching orders. And there's a lot of goodwill regionally toward this effort. So, you know, early on, it's not like it was easy, but people are supportive of like getting something started, people love a new idea. So, you know, we did have some good responses from funders, you know, early on, I think, a couple of things that I learned, and I don't, I don't know if I was aware of them at the time, but that I learned through doing and now looking back, I can see that they were sort of part of how I operated. Like one was like, it just like not, not finding the funding wasn't an option. Like Mm -hmm. we were going to make it like, so just having that, like we got, we have to do this.
0: Yeah. It's, it's going to come through. It's going to happen. We just have to do the steps to do it.
1: Exactly. And sometimes like I will like this will happen. Like it almost felt like, you know, I I will this to be so. And so, you know, and I think that there's value in that because then if I was talking to a funder, it wasn't like desperation. It was more like just a like a belief, like this is such a great thing that this like that this has to all work. Um, so that was one thing and and you know, really just like the power of connection. So when I found someone who believed in what we were doing, just like building that relationship and connecting from there. And so, so many amazing people just went out of their way to support that. So I I do think there is, you know, for like good, bold ideas. And I'm, you know, it wasn't my bold idea. Like there are other founders. I got to just be the like passionate sort of representative of it. And, And that, you know, speaks to people And then the other thing too, I mean, I think financial necessity is a really great master. I mean, I always wish that we had more resources, but um, we built great partnerships, which was ended up being a really good model. So we got really clear on like, what do we need to do? Like, what can we uniquely do? So we need to get funding for that, but what's the other stuff that needs to happen that someone else can do and we can be a good partner to them. So we had great partnerships with state government, with other nonprofit entities, with individual landowners um and that was really really a good lesson for me and really kind of informs you know a lot of how i think about leadership in general and like running an organization is like be clear on what you need to do don't get focused on like building your kingdom like especially as a nonprofit like do what you need to do really well and then like you know, cheer on and develop relationships with those partners who are doing all the other work that also needs to happen that you don't need to do and you don't need to own it. And it's better, you know, if you don't in a lot of cases. So Mm -hmm. that was a, that worked really well for us. And and again, like great relationships and great partnerships that I think enabled us to, to move forward in some ways that were much stronger than if we had just been like, no, we have to do this ourselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. And then, and then you landed at 1% from for the planet and that, you know, this organization, I mean, has been growing like crazy, um, over the past few years and it's incredible to see the impact. Um, I was actually having a, um, a beer the other day with a friend and he, it, we're on zoom and he's, he lives in Boston and he was like, I went to this really tiny brewery in Maine and like, he just holds it up and he's rotating it and I'm like, oh my God. I see it. There it is. I was like, "Oh, they're one percent for the planet certified," and you know, it's such it's such a cool thing to see the the growth of the organization and the awareness that it's actually starting to generate. Um, what were your kind of goals when you you know first started there? What was what were kind of the challenges that you had to kind of look at as one for one percent for the planet had to grow? I mean, you had you have a good base. You have, you know, the fact that you have two incredible founders of it, so you have a little bit of reputation there, but it, you still have to grow something at the end of the day. So what was that looking like when you first walked in? What was your first day like?
1: Hmm. Um, you know, it was an interesting time to join. So at like I started as director of partnerships and then a year later I became CEO. So I kind of in a lot of ways consider that like first day as CEO is day one. Um mm-hmm. Because it like it was such a transitional year before. And I think really um, you know, it was an interesting inflection moment for the organization because the like first 10 plus we were like 12 years old at that point, you know, and there had been like getting started, growth, and then there's a little bit of a plateau, which I think is kind of natural. Like most organizations don't just have a smooth lineup, and you know, especially when there's like a leadership transition and we had a little bit of a stall in between. So you know we were at a moment of like, all right, like we gotta kind of reactivate and like get the energy going again. And so I think, you know, if it was, I would say the overwhelming feeling I had was um what of the many priorities, how do I order the many priorities that I see for so that feeling of like this is all urgent and important, and how do I like, what do I do first and what do I do second? And then like pacing too, like how to, how to sort of understand the pace of change that needed to happen and that could happen and, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, so it was, uh, it was, you know, a lot of just like figuring all that out. And I, I think, um, the key was connecting to members and understanding what they needed to, you know, get re-engaged and re-energized and like to like get the engine sort of going again. And, 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 you know, it was the member companies are the ones at that time, it was just member companies. We now have individuals as well, but Mm -hmm. the member companies um, were, you know, we had some really committed ones. We had some new ones joining. We had some like ebb and flow at that time and, you know, they're giving to the nonprofit. So also really making sure that we're like, you know, upholding the nonprofit side. But at that time we were about 1100 members and just for like, scale last year alone we brought on 1700 new members so we really um you know we're at a time when in good ways i think we're able to kind of get our hands around the network a little bit and you know we put in there's a, i would say a lot of not very exciting or sexy like process building that went on that has been so necessarily we're still doing a lot of that like you know people are always like oh you have such an amazing job and it's like yeah i'm on a computer all day like, all day <laughs> people about like systems but that's a lot of what it is is like in service of driving change on the ground and like really you know equipping our nonprofits with resources to do the amazing work that they do there's all these things that need to happen to support our members, to like track things, to tell stories, to like track impact, all of that. You know. So really setting up the organization to facilitate that so that the good work can happen. So I would say um, prioritization, system building, team building, like getting you know, the right people um, on board. And as I like talked about before, like oriented in the right direction not always an easy thing to do so you know we've definitely you know worked at that and you know fortunately right now we're in a place where we have an amazing amazing team and we're growing and hiring and you know our our challenge is that people are super busy because we have so much wonderful growth so props to the team for holding on and like looking forward to like bringing on some new people who will you know help us to continue to grow but also to like you know have a little bit more uh, capacity space
0: what about your job brings you the most joy? Is it the, is it the growth of the members? Is it the awareness? Is it the change that's actually happening? Because you mentioned systems. And I think that's something that's always overlooked in terms of how change happens. Um, A lot of people think it just kind of happens, but there's a, there is a system behind, you know, any type of change that is really mindful Um, and I think that having that system in place is really important. What has been the most joyous part of, you know, your time so far as being CEO?
1: I would have to say like the, um, like generosity of spirit of. Members and nonprofits and staff, like just the people involved, like you know, there have been for everyone involved, like at different times, there have been like ways in which it's like challenging, like making the commitment of 1%, like there are challenges associated with that, like being a staff member, managing it, there are like hard things that you have to like figure out or navigate sometimes, like being a nonprofit partner, tons of hard work that you're doing to like deliver your mission and try to, you know, access those resources. And so I think what brings me the most joy is Connecting, like having real relationships, and and building a system that fosters real relationships. Like so, so I get to have these amazing conversations, like we're having with amazing people who are so committed and really thinking hard about these issues. And there are so many relationships between staff members and members, and nonprofits and members and nonprofits, and they're giving relationships. But there's also like learning relationships, and people become friends and. Like, so I'm just like blown away by, and and it does bring me great joy to sort of see and feel and hear about the relationships that really are at the core of what we do. And, you know, in some cases, the relationships are defined by money going from, you know, one to the other, but usually that's accompanied by, uh, you know, a lot more um, sort of supporting that in terms of like, you know, human connection. So I feel incredibly fortunate because, um, you know, we're, the planet is facing some really, planet and the people on it, we're all facing some really hard issues right now and feeling, legitimately feeling some fear about what lies ahead. And we're also all learning a lot about like how different issues are connected and how we're seeing intersections that we hadn't necessarily always seen before. And like a lot of it's like hard and scary and we don't know where it's going to land. So to be in relationship with a lot of amazing people doing amazing things while navigating and thinking about and feeling those hard things is like a real, a real gift because it like keeps me going. And I know it like keeps others going and we're able to like learn and grow together. So it's pretty awesome.
0: It's, it's an incredible community. I mean, I mean, our, I joined last year and it just that it's, it's so amazing to see like how every single, if you just have a 1% for the planet logo somewhere, you instantly feel this sense of community and it, and it's it's amazing to see like that that type of community growing of just there's there's a hopeful change and a and a and a sense of positivity around it that i think is so it's so cool and so valuable um and 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 so diverse too i mean you have so many different types of businesses that are involved too that it it almost is starting to build a A collective ecosystem that can you know create change because if any time you manufacture something you have to have it manufactured somewhere and that has an impact and when all of those people start working together you can actually drive it Um, and I think that that is probably one of the coolest things Um, I mean so when when you start looking at all these people that you've been able to connect with and and grow in relationships with I mean what Is it? What are the challenges? Do you see that we're facing the biggest as a world? Like, is because there are so many topics that are talked about nowadays. um, You know, whether it's carbon, whether it's um, deforestation, whether it's ocean conservation, plastics, microplastics. I mean, there's so many different topics, and I think for a lot of people that don't, that aren't in it every day, it's just overwhelming. Like, what do you what do you think is Cause you're kind of on the ground talking to a lot of these businesses in all different areas. What are kind of those areas of focus and how does 1% for the planet kind of play a role in that?
1: That is such an excellent question. And I kind of have two levels of answers of answer to that. One is that, um, in a way, like the main issue is the overwhelm, because I think for a lot of people, um, they, feel overwhelmed and then they feel paralyzed. And that's I get I get that I have felt that before. So I don't say that with any criticism whatsoever. It's like a really like natural and understanding understandable reaction. Like I don't know how little me can get traction on these big issues and and I literally don't know what to do. And I feel like overwhelmed and disheartened and um and, and thus I don't know what to do. So I'm not doing anything. Um, And a lot, we have people come to us and say, that's what I'm feeling. And 1% of the planet, they're psyched because it represents a way that they can chunk it down and say, okay, like what's the 1% that I can do? And I think that's the the power and beauty of the model. But I do think, um, you know, that sense of feeling overwhelmed and a a, like piece of that is feeling like I have to identify what's the most important thing um, of all these things. And that leads to me to the like second level of what I'm thinking about is I think we get asked a lot and it's a totally fair question. Like what, you know, why don't you or why, you know, have you um, identified a priority issue and tried to direct funding to that as opposed to our model, which is more like customized. Like what are your interests and values and how do you want to all- allocate your giving? And I wrestle with that because I, at one level I get it. Like there are, you know, very real things that if they don't get, resolved could make other things irrelevant, Um, you know, and climate is often sort of held up as that example. But at the same time, we have seen, and the more I, I'll speak for myself, although I, you know, I think a lot of us on the team are thinking this way, we, the more we get to know the issues, the more we see how they're all integrated. Um, And so I think a challenge is like the human capacity to like, live in complexity um which again like zero criticism in saying that like I feel that too like sometimes I feel like my head's gonna explode but I do think our ability to um want a simple clear answer like you should do this sometimes maybe like limits our ability to see like what I most need to do is the thing that I can stick with and that is meaningful to me because then I'm gonna keep doing it and that's gonna matter. And it's someone else over here is gonna care more about that. And if we all do our part, we're gonna catch all of it and we're gonna actually bring a lot more joy to it. So, you know, that's what I really believe. And I, and that makes me feel like really, like I I reground in our model when I sort of go through that thought process which I have to do every now and then because I sometimes think we should be focused on X, Y, or Z. But like really um, I think when people, give in ways that like speak to what they most care about and that align with their values and that um, you know maybe bring them joy but maybe sometimes just like make them feel like they're addressing the thing that breaks their heart so it's not always joyful but it's like heartful I think when we do that we do stick with it and we do build the relationships that kind of keep us going and then again we sort of understand that there's a lot of those issues intersect with other issues so we are actually doing a lot more than we may think we are when we you know pick that one thing so i think just you know the overwhelm and the complexity are like i think the two challenges both of which though give us a way to kind of be say all right so what we most need to do is like listen to to what guides us what you know what we align to and then like pursue that cuz that's what's going to get us there
0: i love that I, I think that there's so much truth to that. And, and I would love for, for at least the people that don't know, like, why, why that model for 1%, like to go, hey, we're not going to tell you what to do. We're just going to guide you and let you do what you believe in. Why, why that model? And why is that so powerful?
1: I think some of it is like, honestly, human psychology, like people people fight for what they love. I mean, and there's lots of ways that we see that and people also, um, you know, stick with those things that, you know, feel like they're aligned. Whereas the thing that always feels like it's pushing a um, boulder up a hill, like eventually you're like, I'm gonna go do something that's a little easier. And that's not, again, not because we're lazy or anything. It's just, we're human. Um, so I think you know there's some of that built in, and then I think also you know the our founders Yvonne Chenard and Craig Matthews they knew that like for businesses to join and sort of lean into it they would need to have the ability to um, sort of align what they were doing with sort of who they who they were and who they were becoming as members so and to have that connection and so I think I think it really comes from a place of um, recognizing that the power of giving is in the, the relationships and the connection to the giving. And so by you know building that kind of diversity and customization of ways that people can engage as donors, it's longer lasting. And as we grow, it really does like collectively cover so many of the different issues and create, again, all these different interconnections across the different issues. So, um, you know, sometimes, people do wish that we would be more directive towards like this is the issue you sh- you should focus on or we should take in all the money and give it out and we have explored like what are the ways that we can do a little more of that when there are different sort of crises like wildfires or things like that we do create like here's a list of you know nonprofits that you can give to to address this issue They're really powerful and you know useful for you know our members and for others so there is value in that but i do think that like opportunity for businesses and individuals, for our members to sort of align their giving with their values. That is sort of core to, to 1% of the planet, I think.
0: And how is businesses, I guess, I, th- I think it's a more of a generational shift that's been happening, but people want to buy products, invest in companies that have some sort of mission, um, whether it be social, environmental, anything, um, there's also that flip side of, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can. Like, I'm just trying to, you know, keep my doors open and all that. How does that, in your mind, what is that kind of psychological battle, if you will, that that someone is, is challenging with of when they decide, like, I do want to join 1% for the planet. Like, I know it's a little bit of a risk, but, like, this feels right to me. Um, what have you kind of seen as that journey for some of those businesses? Cause it is a hurdle to make a commitment and it is like, you are making, you're making a commitment to something. Um, and I know sometimes for people, commitment can be a little bit scary. Right.
1: We try and stay out of the psychology of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I would say, um, you know, it's a very different process for every business in part, like, cause you know, different businesses have like different margins. So for some businesses, 1% of sales is like a huge and like may mean the difference between an employee raise or not. Whereas for other businesses, 1% of sales is still a big number, but it they still have some headroom to make other decisions. So it doesn't have quite as much of a... Um, the cost as it were. So, you know, we recognize that it varies and, you know, and there's some businesses who just based on their like particular parameters, just don't see a way through to doing it. Increasingly, we are seeing more and more businesses join from all different sectors who realize like speaking to the like change the the change in consumers that you described, like it's great business, you know, consumers are looking for ways to say like, Product A, product B, this one's making a credible commitment to something I care about, the planet. This one, I don't know if they are, I can't see. Like, cool, I'm gonna pick product A because like I see that credible commitment. And there's like a lot of research that shows that consumers are making those choices. So, you know, I would say our early members were a lot more like it's the right thing to do. Like that's why they joined. Like businesses should give back and whether or not it's a good business decision or return, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because it's good for the planet. And we still have a lot of members who that's their motivation. And we also um, see and ha- you know have members who, and it's totally a fair question, like, is this gonna be a good business decision for me? And I think the consumer data is starting to show that like, yeah, it actually is um, something that, that does resonate with consumers. Um, and so that's a really powerful opportunity to really make, bring together you know, doing what's the right thing just because it's the right thing and having it also be good for business. And I think, you know, that is increasingly being seen across the board.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think the the consumer side of things is really starting to drive change. I think people realize that like, yes, you can make decisions as a business, but ultimately consumers do drive markets. And if Consumers are starting to make those decisions. You can you can have a lot more impact, and and I think it's been a really really cool shift. I mean, part part of it is I'm I'm part of that generation, of course, but um, it, it's it's really cool to see people. I mean, buy products that they care about, not just how fast they can get it. Um, and I think that that's kind of a it's an important shift that needed to happen. Um, but there's also still a long ways to go. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to figure out. There's the you have companies that seem to be environmentally, you know, conscious but they're not. And and there's a lot of that kind of miscommunication in the market going on as well. And I think I think 1% for the planet kind of provides almost like that backbone of of trust. Um and and that's what I definitely wanted to dive into is I mean as a brand, there's so much trust in what you guys do. Um what does that look like in terms of building trust and and keeping it because obviously like especially in business you you break trust once it it starts just going downhill especially the bigger you are um so you know how does that look how does that look like from like a, i guess a ceo perspective when it comes to trust whether it be from the brands or the consumers
1: mm-hmm. so it's a, it's a great question so i mean at, at a mental level that our certification process is the core kind of demonstration of our trustworthiness um, so every year every member um, is certified and what that means is we're you know looking at their at evidence of their revenue so it's a tax return or a letter from an accountant and then we're also looking at evidence of their one percent donations doing the math one percent of revenues then boom you're good that's you're certified but we do that every year and um you know, it's, it's work and as our network grows, you know, it's, it's not something, you know, we certainly create as many tools as we can back to systems to streamline those parts that can be streamlined, but it still takes a brain, you know, look at and making sure that it matches up and, you know, answering questions. And so that's a really important piece of it. Um, and then also, you know, connecting that certified giving to real impact. And so and and communicating that. So we also, you know, are continuing to work on sort of how we engage our nonprofit community, how we tell the stories of those giving relationships, how we equip and support members to tell the stories of what they're doing, because I think that that's sort of the way that, you know, the kind of hardcore certification is surrounded by the um, the reality of the impact that it drives and that is when the sort of click happens of like okay this is a credible commitment to driving real impact this company like i get it like i feel like my dollars are driving change in a in a way that i can trust so i'm good with that and so you know the the pieces of it are certainly how we do our certification is an important piece of it sort of how our members show up as members and we don't require perfection in fact we really think that one percent for the planet is a great like change making um community because you know companies can join and do you know make their one percent commitment and still have a lot of other things that they are figuring out on their you know journey to become more sustainable and that's great that's totally fine we actually want that we want for people to Come into this community and ha- and join this community, which can be so supportive of and instructive around like ways that you can make further changes. So, so I think that's really important. And then our nonprofits too, like making sure that we're like supporting and bringing on those nonprofits that really can sort of drive change in powerful ways, and that we're continuing to stay educated and you know think and really. Um, sort of big and complex ways about how environmental giving is evolving as we, you know, continue to, you know, learn more about how it intersects with, intersects with justice issues and things like that. So I think, you know, all of, all of those pieces, you know, we need to continue to work on those and we need to continue to be, you know, transparent about the ways that we're still learning. Um, Cause I think that's a Im- really important piece of trust as well.
0: Yeah. Transparency. I I think it's something that's growing um, in terms of just, almost that requirement from the consumer is the transparency. Um, it's, it's, are you, are you actually backing up what you're saying too? Um, and I think that's really key. Um, when you guys go to measure impact, um, what, it, what does that look like? Cause I mean, it, your, your impact is so it's, it's vast, it's big, and it's also sometimes very intangible. Um, how do you guys try and measure that?
1: Yeah, it's a, you know, something that we, wrestle with at one level, but is also clear at another level. So, you know, our primary impact metric is the amount of giving that we do, because that's what we track. And so we can Mm -hmm. report on that in a pretty like discrete quantifiable way. Like that's the certification that we're tracking. So, um, so those dollars are, you know, the impact of our community, but they they are driving change on the ground, which is the impact that we all really want to hear about. Like, the, like, so what are those dollars doing? And so part of the way we communicate that is through, you know, who is our nonprofit network? And then part of the way that we do that is those that storytelling. So, you know, communicating in a bunch of different ways what's happening as a result of those dollars we definitely encourage um, unrestricted giving. So we don't, you know, so, and we're okay with this. There, there's not like a direct line from every dollar to an acre or a pound of trash or, you know, X or Y or Z. Like, you know, we know, and we love that our dollars are often supporting some staff time, some space, some a place to work, you know, the ability to, um, You know, have a staff that's organizing volunteers. Like, so we know that, like, some of our dollars are supporting that. And we think that's awesome because nonprofits that are well supported, they know what needs to happen. They're going to make it happen. So we have a lot of trust in the great nonprofits that we bring on to implement important work. And they also, like, are doing work on the ground. So they're often able to share with the members who are supporting them and with us acres, pounds, X, Y, Z, like, so we also get those sort of harder impact metrics that we're able to share. But, um, you know, we really feel that those are, that's the accomplishment of the nonprofits. Our members have provided dollars that have led to that impact. And we definitely want to tell that story, but we also don't want to appropriate that story.
0: Do you think that kind of comes from realistically your, your leadership style that you've had kind of your, your whole life of just empowering the community around you to kind of do what they do best and and follow their heart and you know that that impact will be oftentimes intangible but also has the opportunity to be bigger
1: um I mean I certainly definitely you know foster that and I love that my team is really great at trying to figure out like what are the ways that we can like give more um, structure to how we tell the story so, you know, some of it is being like open to that evolution. I will say also though, that like Yvonne, he's a big proponent of, um, get great people. So whether it's hiring or vetting nonprofits or whatever it is that you're doing, and then let them be great. Don't like get out of the way. Don't like cause them to be too restricted by you. So I've, feel like that's part of why 1% has been a great fit is that's like very much my mindset as well. And so Mm -hmm. that's built into kind of how 1% got off the ground. And, you know, I get to sort of continue with those next iterations. And I also like really appreciate um, the good questions and the like challenge for us to be like, yeah, we actually, it is our responsibility to make sure that we're articulating what's happening as a result of that giving. But I also, you know, am comfortable with the fact that we can't create a neat table that says this many acres, this many, Mm -hmm. you know, pounds of trash that like, that's, that's not what our, how our model works, but that doesn't mean that we're not able to share and celebrate a lot of impact.
0: So what does the future of 1% look like? Are, what are, what are kind of the goals that you guys are reaching for? Is it more awareness? Is it I mean, obviously constantly more businesses getting certified is definitely a goal. Um, But what what does that future look like? And and how are you kind of driving that side of it?
1: You know, definitely growing the network because that's how we grow impact. That's, you know, that is part of, you know, what we're after. Um, And, you know, continuing as a staff to get better at supporting that growth. So like that's, that's a goal because, you know, again, that's that's how we drive global impact. Um, we are putting a lot of thought into really understanding and sort of redefining what environmental philanthropy means, particularly as we move into this greater awareness of and learning about intersectional environmentalism and how justice issues are embedded in environmentalism. And, you know, how do we, um, Bring that forward. So we have a lot of learning still to do there, but our team has been making some great progress. And I think with our staff and our board, we're really going to be stepping into, you know, how how do we move that forward in terms of like really who we are moving forward. Um, and then we are going to be launching um, a way that people can contribute who aren't members and be part of our model. I'm going to like give you a little teaser there. I won't see more it's Still, <laughs> sort of coming, but, you know, we are going to be adding a new way that environmental philanthropy can drive change. That is part of how we like hope to just continue to, to scale and, and, you know, make even more great things happen.
0: What are you most excited about for the future? Is it, is it being a part of that process? Is it continuing to grow the community? Is it all of it? Like, how do you feel, I guess, being the CEO of this? I know, I know probably day to day. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like me really I'm CEO. Like, I know it definitely probably feels that way, but you know, do you ever, do you ever look at kind of where you've been and where you're at and where you're headed and kind of just pause kind of like you did at the mountain and be like, wow, this is pretty cool.
1: hmm Yeah. It's good to like bring back to that mountain top moment because, um, you know, there are days when figuratively I do feel like I'm, wet, I'm tired, I'm hungry, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, I really feel, I think probably the thing I feel most is both like gratitude and like obligation in the good sense of the word. Um, and like gratitude to be able to have this um, opportunity to work with, like the amazing people on my staff and the amazing members who are making this commitment and the nonprofits who are doing such incredible work to like situate all this work on the ground. So just like immense gratitude and that's huge fuel source. And then, um, you know, I think the like the obligation comes in the sense of like, we have so much to learn. And as we grow, we have like this responsibility, maybe that's a better word, this responsibility to like continue to learn. And so like thinking about the like environmental justice work, like we're in a position to like be, you know, making decisions and making it really more like advising decisions around giving. And we want to do that with a huge degree of thoughtfulness and humility and respect for, you know, a greater understanding of the, um, you know, how that giving can support the environment in different ways than it has in the past. So I feel a responsibility to really like step into that learning. And I love that, like that, as I mentioned earlier, like I stay as long as I'm, as I, I shouldn't say it that way, but I'm, I feel like as long as I'm learning in a place, I feel like I'm contributing in the best ways and feeling like hugely energized by it. So I feel hugely energized by, everything right now. Cause we, I am continuing to learn a lot and it's in this context of like immense gratitude for the relationships that I get to do that within. That's
0: incredible. Um, wow. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so grateful for, you know, what you've been building and, and what 1% does and, and how, I mean, you guys are driving change like collectively as a company, the members are doing it the nonprofits are doing it. Like it's, it's such an incredible community and the growth that has happened is just going to, I think it's just going to keep accelerating. Um, cause you guys are doing some incredible stuff. So, um, I wanted to ask a, a final, um, few questions. So one of which, um, where is your favorite place to enjoy nature in, in the whole world? Where's, where's your favorite place to go?
1: can I have more than one?
0: Totally. Absolutely.
1: Um, one of my favorite places is Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. Um, it's this absolutely amazing. It's a national park, um, but it's a traditional, uh, native site and it's just so powerful and beautiful. And, um, you know, I realize now, like, it's a place that I've loved ever since we lived in New Mexico and, um, like I wonder, um, given that it's you know traditional, it, uh, it's sort of native um, ruins that were like the the people moved many many years ago. But I do wonder, like you know, about the kind of lay of the land. But it's mm-hmm. gorgeous and powerful and meaningful to me. So I love Chaco Canyon. Um, I, I'm a big fan of like backyard wilderness. So, you know, another favorite place is like the woods behind our house. There's a meadow where that has a view kind of looking South East and I get to go there almost every day. And it just like, is a really grounding place for me. So I love that. And then third, I'll, I'll do one more is um I've been so fortunate to go down to Patagonia a couple times on the Chilean and Argentinian side. And just absolutely adore those big wild mountains down there so
0: wow those are some pretty great places Um, I definitely have to agree being in nature is there's something so grounding about it Um, I was lucky enough to grow up in Santa Cruz which Santa Cruz California which is like a surf town forest meets the ocean and I grew up across the street from a redwood forest and you just walk across and you're just surrounded by these massive redwoods and you're like they've been here a very, very long time. And this is really cool to be here. <laughs> and then you go to the ocean and you're like, this has been here a very long time.
1: I know it's super powerful. I definitely like in the woods behind our house, like when, you know, if I'm having a tough day or, you know, just feeling like I'm dealing with a leadership challenge or whatever, there are a couple trees that like I lay hands on and just like have this thought of like, okay, you've been through storms. You have been through like lightning." drought, like, cause these are like these massive trees, like the, you know, they're not, not as big as the redwoods, but they've been around for a long time. Like they've seen a lot and they've, you know, stood strong through a lot of change. So I just like take so much like learning and instruction from that in the same way that like standing in Chaco Canyon and just having that sense of like this place, which has such natural beauty, but also, you know has so much meaning from a human standpoint. Like there's just something like really, really powerful about, About that place too.
0: Well, and and I guess just the final follow-up question to that is like, you know, what can we learn from nature? Because I mean, it's it's been here longer than humans. So, you know, what what are some of those lessons that we can learn from nature? Is it resiliency? Is it, you know, working in harmony? What what is it?
1: Mm Hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the most important things we can learn from nature is that we are part of it. (laughs) Um, I I think it is so interesting. And I do this too, but I think we tend sometimes to think of our, like as humans and nature, like we say them separately and it's like, we're part of it. Like when, you know, we're, we're like biological beings who live in this, you know, this ecosystem and we seem to be like really good at doing everything we can to separate ourselves from it. But like when we let ourselves, we can just be part of it. So that I think is one of the, you know, things that we can learn with nature is that, that that's who we are is you know we are of nature the other thing I do think resilience um like I just you know I was mentioning those trees like you know some trees I'll see that it's like grown around a rock or something like that it's like that took years (laughs) and it's probably a lot harder than just like growing straight up but you did it and um or you know a tree that's clearly you know got knocked by some lightning or like an ice storm here where I live or whatever case might be and had like some big chunk of it fall off but like then all these new branches these new green leaves are, are growing and so definitely like endless examples of resilience i think um but also of like fragility and i think that's important to see too is like it's incredibly resilient and um you know when you see the like a place where we've like you know there's been you know chemical spills or things like that like it can also be like damaged so i think we also there's like resilience and respect
0: wow i love that well thank you so much for just all of your time on this it's incredible um it's it's been wonderful to just meet and get to know you and have such a deep conversation about all these topics um it it really really is incredible and i'm so grateful for it it's it's awesome
1: Likewise. Well, thanks. Great questions. I enjoyed it.
0: Thanks again for Kate Williams for being on Sustainable Go podcast. Uh, it's just incredible what One Percent for the Planet is doing and the growth that the organization has had and all the people that are getting around it. I mean, this is this is a global movement, and I hope that everybody that's listening, you know, becomes a part of it. Um, I am, and it's something I completely believe in. Um, it's it's such a great organization. So. Um, If you haven't checked out 1% for the Planet, definitely go to their website, sign up, become a member of 1% for the Planet. You're only going to be doing great things with that. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.